right, welcome to the Drunk Guys Book Club, where books aren't just for school, where book clubs aren't just for women, and beer makes everything better. This week's book is The Road by Cormac McCarthy. I'm Mike. I'm Nate. And we're the Drunk Guys. So Cormac McCarthy's book, The Road, came out in 2006, won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. Interestingly, we just recently did Oscar Wow, which also won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. And I don't think you could find two more dissimilar books. No. Oscar Wow came out 2007, won the Pulitzer in 2008. So this is right next to each other. Yeah, they are worlds apart. And we didn't really pick them with that theme in mind. We just picked them because we liked the books, but for very different reasons. So the story of The Road is really simple, actually. There is a man who is called The Man. And his son, the boy, with son, they don't have names, and they live in a post-apocalyptic United States, what was the United States. There has been an atomic war, and civilization is destroyed, and they are just trying to survive. The story of the book is mostly a man and, and his son trying to make their way from what I think is the Midwest to the East Coast during the winter, roughly four or five years after the end of the world. After a, it, it doesn't really say what happened. I mean, they say it's an atomic war, but it does not really say why that happened. That's not the point of the book. Since you're mentioning it, let's have our first beer. All right. This is from Flying Monkeys Craft Brewery, which is in Canada, I think. Yeah, it's, in, yeah, it's Barry, Canada. What the hell is Barry? What's the beer called? Beer is called Smash Bomb Atomic IPA. Mm. So we're going real tactful with this beer. Yeah, tasteful. Hopefully the beer is tasteful. Atomic IPA. It is 6% alcohol. Let me give you a little thing about its citra hops. I don't know, run-of-the-mill IPA, I have to say. Not the strongest IPA I've ever had. Not an alcohol or hoppiness or smell. It's also a little thin-bodied for my taste, but maybe that's just because I'm so used to those over-the-top IPAs everybody likes to make, the doubles mm-hmm. and triples and whatever. It's okay. I don't know where they get the temerity to say... Smash Bomb Atomic. There's nothing right, yeah. atomic about this. That's a fine beer, nonetheless. Picked it because that's how the world ends, in, uh, or the civilization ends, rather, in the road. They, they never say specifically, but they do mention like the city's burning and the yeah. bombs dropping. And Well, there's this one sort of flashback sequence where he's with his wife. She's about to give birth, and then they see some like explosions long off in the distance, and the power goes out. And I mean, it's clear enough what happened, but it never says why. Nor with whom, right? You know yeah. it's the United States, more or less, but you don't know who, who bombed them. I mean, we can them. assume. Well, we could, but maybe in a couple of years, people will assume something different mm-hmm. in, in a post-World War II world, there's a lot of different people you could assume might want to drop some bombs on other other people. Mm-hmm. It is nice and bleak, just like the rest of the book is. Yes. So it's called The Road because that's really what they're following. They're trying to head south and to the coast, yeah. to warmer, more temperate areas where they might live. Because there, it not only has civilization ended, but there's no vegetation. The trees mm-hmm. are dead. The sky yeah. is perpetually gray. And there's just ash settling everywhere from all of the explosions and, de- and detonations and or whatever and fires. There's nothing to – it's not like they can, you know, start farming or anything. There's nothing. They have to scavenge. And there's some scenes of them scavenging, you know, taking uh, – mm-hmm. he stops in a garage and takes the last couple of drips of oil out of all of the containers of oil cans. Of motor oil. And, and con- condenses that. So they could use that to make a fire to, you know, to light their, their kerosene lamp or whatever they have at night. There, there's nothing out there. It's all scavenging. And there are very few survivors who they meet throughout their journey of, and they're a varying quality of human. Yeah. So for most of the book, the, the main plot of the book is the, the man and the boy are just trying to like, they have a cart of, of their like very meager supplies. 
They're always scavenging for food. They're following along this road, and then they run into really, really horrifying, crazy things. Or they're trying to avoid the other people who are terrible, and they like find a abandoned house, and they manage to go through it and find a little bit of food here and there. At one point, they get really lucky, and they find somebody's bunker, like, you know, end-of-the-world bunker that was not used at all, and they spend, a, like, two or three days there and, like, refill their supplies. But for the most part, it's just walking along the road, trying to survive, trying to make it further south and further towards the coast. This is probably the most horrifying book I've ever read. And, and we can get into more about why. So here are just some of the things that happened. Like, in the very f- first part of the book, the man and the boy, they come across a, a tractor trailer that is, like, lying <clears throat> on the road, and they're trying to they want to get into it, see if there's anything they can find in there. And then the man manages to get in, and it's just full of corpses, like rotting corpses. Later, they find what looks like an abandoned house. And they go look through the house, and then they find that there's a cellar. And so they open up the, the trap door, and they go in the cellar, and there are live people in the cellar. This is probably the most one of the most disturbing points in the entire book. Right. They're not just alive living in the cellar. These are people who are filthy and naked and chained to the walls mm-hmm. who are being kept there as food as food like the you know the first person he's the first person the man sees has has no legs his legs have been chopped off and the, and the wound crudely cauterized yeah. with <clears throat> you know with a torch there's no refrigeration mm-hmm. they can't eat the person all at once if they kill the guy the meat will go to waste yeah so they whoever is holding these people is eating them piece by piece and there are four five six people in the cellar and all they do is whisper save us help us and they can't and the the man and the boy they can't do anything like that and they see through the little window that there are people coming whoever it is that are keeping the other people in the basement they have to just run they just have to like flee for their lives out of this situation this is the kind of thing that happens in the book over and over again yeah there there's awful things there's another scene of sort of this grim parade of a group that they see on the road and they try to hide from it as people chained as slaves to the to the cart mm-hmm. and they use the word catamites boy yeah. sex slaves mm-hmm. you know so it's pretty grim what happens to the people after the end of the world we become awful and we rape and eat each other yeah until there's nothing left to rape and eat if you're looking for a book with cannibalism, no this zombies, is the book. Yeah, no no zombies. zombies. There's nothing supernatural about this book. It's well, just really, really scary. So speaking of that, let's, let's open up this other beer, which is a first for us. Yeah. It's our first beer at a cork. It is. Nate, you brought this beer. Tell us about it. So this, is, this, this beer is called La Fin du Monde, which means the end of the world because... Oh, yeah, there we go. That was a good sound. Because oh. this beer is very much about... This beer and this book is very much about the end of the world. Is by uh, I believe this is also Canadian. Wow, it's all all, all all Canadian. So for your product of Canada, they are in Chambly. No idea how to say that. Chambly. I can't believe Chambly is correct. This is a Belgian style triple ale brewed with spices. So it's made in Canada, not Belgium. It's a Belgian style. It's a nice golden color. Really, really vigorous. Really vigorous bubbly head. It definitely has spices in it. Oh yeah, nice, but also a little sweetness to balance that out. Mm-hmm. A strong nine percent alcohol. It's a really nice beer. It tastes a lot better than I think the end of the world would taste. I don't really know yeah. why they came up with the same. It, it just says on the back of the bottle, La Fin du Monde recreates the style of beer originally developed in the Middle Ages by Trappist monks for special occasions. A golden ale, mildly yeasty with notes of malt, fruit, and spice, followed by a smooth, dry finish. Nothing about the end of the world except the name. Kind of strange, but it's a great beer. <clears throat> well, I'm sure the monks were just hoping for the return of Jesus because, you know, that's all they really cared about. 
It's, it's millennial millennialism mm-hmm. year. <laughs> I mean, the Middle Ages sucked, so I'm sure they thought the middle the end of the world was any day now. Most of the Middle Ages. It looked like they at least hoped. Yeah. So throughout the book, the boy asks the father, you know, what are we doing? Where are we going? And constantly the father kind of, well, the boy really does it more than the father. The father mm-hmm. said this to the boy and the boy just. The boy, well, let's pause for a second. The boy was born on the day that the world ended. Right. So he is exactly the same age as this new world that they're living in. He's exactly the age, which is probably about four or five years old. And He's never known life before at the end of the world. There's interesting statements. Like there's, a, there's one line where the father is looking at the boy. And he says, if he isn't the voice of God, then God never spoke. And there's also strange religious symbolism about the boy and, and representing something about the work of God. The boy keeps asking the father to confirm or reaffirm that they are the good guys mm-hmm. and that they are carrying the fire. So they're carrying the fire. What do you think that means, carrying the fire? Well, okay, that was an interesting phrase. So I looked it up, and uh, the first thing—the first thing that I thought of—is it sounded like the Greek myth of Prometheus. Is that's what it sounded like to me? Prometheus is the sort of—I don't—is he a titan or whatever? He gives the gift of fire to man, to mankind. But the other gods are PO'd, and they punish him for this. That he is chained to a rock, mm. and a some bird, a hawk, or raven, or something eats his liver every day. Which regrows every night so it could happen again the next day. Which is pretty amazing that the Greeks knew that the liver regenerated itself. Maybe they just got really lucky. I don't know. So here's why I thought it was about Prometheus. It's because this is the end of civilization, but yet there are some people still around. And you would assume that some people would be looking to restart civilization. They were looking to, they'd be looking to remake civilization. And this boy wants to help everybody. He, he wants everything to be good again. Nothing's ever known his old world, the, the old world before, but in a way, his sort of goodness is the fire that, when he finds the right people, could come together and could restart civilization. So maybe this, like, kindness is the fire that will begin civilization again. That makes a lot of sense, especially going with the other thing about the voice of God and the optimism that the, the father sees in the boy and the boy mm-hmm. represents. Because there's the scene where they meet the, the guy who says he's 100, he was struck by lightning or something like that, and he's 100 years old. Those are actually two different people. Oh, right. But one of them, the boy wants to give food to. And the father's like, no. Well, both of them. I, everybody. We can't spare anything. We don't have enough for us. The boy kind of pleads for the father to begrudgingly give a can of fruit cocktail or whatever it is mm-hmm. to the other stranger. The boy is generous in, the, in a world that is unkind. So the boy represents that. So maybe that, that's the fire, right, that they will use to restart all civilization, to reignite the furnace of the world. It's interesting that the child represents that and not the father, right? Because the father, his entire goal is to keep the boy alive. To the end of the book where the father dies and all he is concerned about is that the, like, the boy, what happens to the boy? It's heartbreaking at the end when the father is dead yeah. there and the boy cares about the father too. Even though the father's dead and, and he, is, he is saved in the end of the book by another family, they go and they take whatever valuables they can from the cart. And then the boy asks them to leave a blanket for the father. He's going to be cold. Mm-hmm. He's dead. The boy, you know, he's, he's yeah. so innocent, even though he's seen nothing but horror. And the boy sees some shit, man. And it just goes by so quickly. There's, you know, first five minutes of the book, they, they go into a barn. Hanging from the rafters are three people that have, have been hanging there for God knows how long. But they're leather, sun-dried out corpses. It's not an event. It's not a thing that phases yeah. him. They are there just scavenging. The boy is somehow impervious to this horror and still maintains this kindness and, and this softness in the hard world. Well, not impervious. I mean, the boy is still frightened 
I mean, both the man and the boy are both frightened by a lot of the things that happen to them. And, and, and the boy is the one saying, I'm frightened. Can we not do this? You know, can we not go in there? They, you know, uh, several, you know, houses they find along the way. And the boy is saying, let's not go upstairs. Let's not even look. Don't even go up there. We don't want to see. That's true. They're afraid of different things. They are. One of the things that the father has taught the boy is how to kill himself. Mm, yeah. Which pr- probably without really explaining to the boy what that means. But they have a gun that has two bullets. They use one on a guy at the beginning of the book. Who probably, who is from that, isn't he from that group with is, the slaves? Is and... one of the cam- cannibals and will like totally turn them in and they will both be killed. So the father, in, in, in captured, in basically uh, grabs the boy and holds a knife to his throat. And so the father kills that guy. That's with the second bullet. So they only have one left. And they run. They have to leave all their things behind. They run and they, they hide in the forest. And this is still the beginning of the book. Okay. There's a ton more that goes on. So they have one more thing. They have one more bullet. And when they, they find the house with the people being held, being held as food, you know, they, they have to run again. And they're hiding in the woods. And the father says, do you know what to do? You know, if I have to do, if I have to leave... And I give you the gun. Do you know what to do? Do you know how to how to sh- kill yourself? And I want to say that's probably the most disturbing thing I may have ever read. Right, because the boy is shitting in his pants, scared, and he also wants to, you know, like a, a little boy wants to please the, his parents. And yeah, he's like, you have to. He's telling him, like, you have to aim it up, and you have to do yeah. it this way. This kind of reminds me of when we read of mice and men. Like that's that's the better ending for the kid in the man's mind. Hmm. Better for you to shoot yourself in the head and die than to endure what other horrors could await. You could be turned into a slave where you were just raped. And then eaten. And that's that's what weighs on the father. Whereas the boy is scared of different things. The boy is scared of the unknown. It's kind of standard children's scary things. Mm-hmm. He doesn't understand the gravity of their situation always. So they, they do have a different take on that, that world. So they see these horrible things. People cannibalizing other people limb by limb, or piles of corpses, heads on cake platters. And the, the imagery is, is truly disturbing. It's horrifying. What's the point of all that? What's the point? I, well, it, Cormac McCarthy wrote the book thinking about his relationship with his son. Like, you could have had a, another tale about a father and a son bonding mm-hmm. that didn't involve cannibals and child rapists. So I guess <clears throat> kind of was the book a warning. What's funny is that the book, the, the, there's, the apocalypse happens because of a nuclear war, but this is, you know, 15 years after the end of the Cold War. So you would think that wouldn't be nearly as much of a problem, but in reality, it's still just as much of a problem as it used to be. Oh, well, yeah. Now, now that North Korea can allegedly hit Chicago with a yeah, warhead. Yeah, exactly. And the United States and Soviet Union and former Soviet Union, now Russia, have hundreds, if not thousands, of nuclear weapons. Sorry. Still thousands of nuclear weapons ready to go. And there have been multiple times when all the missiles were almost launched by accident. You know, a flock of birds registers on radar as a, as a nuclear missile launch. Multiple times that has happened. And so really the danger of a nuclear holocaust has gone away maybe a little bit, but not really. So we still live in the potential Doctor Strange love world, or I think we do. Or if you want to put it in more 1980s German pop song terms, the 99 Luft balloons world. <laughs> yeah, we still have 99 Luft balloons. You don't want to think about that. Both of, both of us went to school at the tail end. Started going to school at the tail end of the Cold War, mm-hmm. and 
did stupid drills and learned about certainly knew drills. about it. I I think I knew probably less than you did, just because I'm a little younger. But it was a generations of of people lived with this world. And now Cormac McCarthy's born. We just looked up born in 1932 or is it 33? Fucking long time. 33. Ago. 1933. So. The Cold War, uh, you can get into a history argue when does the Cold War start? Does it start in 1945? Does it start in 1941? Does it start in 1950? But it's, he, Still. he lived his entire life, basically, his entire yeah. adult life, certainly, with that being a thing. So it makes sense that that would be, if he thinks of the worst thing that could happen, that's what it could be, because that's mm-hmm. what the worst thing that could have happened was during his lifetime. Is it a warning to us today? I don't think so. I don't think it's a warning because it's not a, the plot is not about the nuclear war. It's not about preventing... No. It's about it's about surviving. Not that he was cashing in. That's a super popular topic these days. It's the survival horror, the survival post-apocalyptic genre. Mm-hmm. And we'll get The Walking Dead, which I know, I know you don't watch, but it is a super popular show. Built more or less on the same premise. You know, the main characters are surviving in this post-apocalyptic world. Virtually everybody they meet is awful. And we love watching that. I, I watch this show. I watch Walking Dead. I've also read all the comics that I love. I like that. I find it interesting. I think there's a reason why we find it interesting. And that brings me to our next beer. All right. This is from Boulevard Brewing Company, not Canada, Kansas City, Missouri. This is Dark Truth Stout from their Smokestack series. This is an Imperial Stout, 9.7% alcohol. That is a dark sandwich. Dark colored head. Poured a little dark on there. Oh man, you can smell like dark fruit, plum, and it's like caramel kind of smell. That's delicious. It's oh. very dark. Probably not the best kind of beer for uh, a summer day. It smells like espresso or coffee. Yeah, there's definitely like a coffee. Flavor. I don't think they add that. I think that's just a product of whatever yeast and malt. They using. just added everything dark. Whatever they're going to make it dark, let's just make it dark and call it the dark truth. Well, that's a really fine beer. Really good beer. When I was trying to pick a book for the, uh, trying to pick a beer for this book, I was thinking find something about like, what I was initially looking for was, was Brooklyn Monster Ale because old people mm-hmm. are monsters, but that wasn't available. And I saw the Dark Truth, and I thought this this speaks to it on another level. Dark Truth, potential Dark Truth, it's just how awful the people are to each other. Maybe that's why we like this kind of genre. Maybe that's why people like that. They like to know, or they're afraid, or they, they to like to consider that we are all one disaster away from eating each other and raping children like that. That's horrible to think about, but is that true? Is that the dark truth? Is that true about civilization? Is it, is it just convenience of civilization that's keeping us from being murderers? According to the book, uh, when I was reading it, when I was rereading it this week, I definitely felt that, you know, this is what's left over of civilization when most people are dead and almost, you know, when civilization is gone, the people are left over become complete animals, become just so incredibly awful to each other and maybe as people we are just animals without our civilization without running water electricity roads toilets if we get rid of that we'll just start eating each other and that's we have nothing left but the the cruelty in this book is it transcends what the animals what animals do to each other right animals animals will eat each other you know a bear will eat cubs of another bear to like go fuck their their mom that shit happens but animals don't chain you up in a basement and eat you limb by limb and ca- cauterize your wound. Well, animals can't plan like that. No, so are we just worse? Is that what it is? Like we're, we're, we're capable of even more cruelty and barbarism because we are thinking rational beings. We can think up worse things than the animal kingdom could possibly 
provide. Well, any study of any study of how people torture other people will will certainly affirm that. Mm-hmm. We can think of some awfully creative ways to hurt people. Ask any of the dictators; they have their yeah. whole whole line of ways of doing it. Ask Trujillo. Trujillo, yeah, with the, the rope around the head. That's brutal. Oh, yeah. That's brutal. Or so like the Colombian necktie, or <laughs> like all these like horrible murderous things that have happened in the in the world. Mm-hmm. Just in the last say, 20 or 30 years. Yep. Just getting started. But you know what? At the end of the day, I don't think that's true. I think that's too pessimistic. I think people are actually a lot better than we give them credit for. I mean, I, I would hope so. Also, even though I was having the, the thought that without civilization, we're all complete animals. For most of human history, all humans, all people have been hunter-gatherers. Like, the, 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 even though the characters in the book never knew how to do that... Most people, most of the time, didn't live in civilization and didn't have toilets and the internet and Twitter. You know, most of the time, people knew how to be fairly decent with each other and live with each other uh, and live as hunter-gatherers. Here's the question. After nuclear war, after the end of the world, would it be just absolute barbarism or would humanity just revert back to the way we used to be? Maybe it ultimately would. But that transition takes time and would see some awful shit. And that's that's where your your speculative fiction genres come in. Mm -hmm. What what does that transition look like? Because the father and the son, well, they're not really planting seeds. They're doing slash and burn agriculture. They're just trying to survive. You know, the movie did this better than the book. The movie actually thought was pretty terrible. But the very ending of the movie, when the other family gets the boy, I forget who it is, the boy or something, they open a can or something and a bug flies out of it. What? Right. So, like, that seems stupid. But the whole thing, throughout the whole book, we think the world is dead. There's nothing left. But actually, there's oh, a little okay. bit of hope. There's a little bit. It's starting to come. It might just come back. It ends a little more optimistically. But the book ends optimistically, too, because mm-hmm. the boy gets discovered by this family. They have a daughter. All right. Now you can, you can do some arithmetic and figure out that maybe there's a chance there for another generation. Mm-hmm. I think, though, to say that people will immediately devolve into being awful to each other... It's just not borne out by history. You know, I think the most awful things that humans have done to each other has been done through civilization, not without it. Right? You think of the Holocaust, or you think of, of Stalin, uh, what was it, the starting the, the Ukrainians, or, or the, Mao, or, or the Gulags, or, or uh, Rwanda, or Cambodia. The civilization is definitely not without its examples of complete insanity. Yeah, and that cruelty is... Only it's only accomplishable because of the organization of society. That organization because of civilization. You know, one civilization either wants to devour itself or somebody else, and that's how you get some of these awful things. So I don't think just in the late twentieth century, the second half of the twentieth century. Yeah, well, actually, there was a bit of a break before the twentieth century. Then you have to go back to like I don't know the religious wars of the seventeenth century, defined you know, burning church loads of Huguenots and stuff like that. You know, other cruel things have happened. Not that there hasn't been war in that interim. But the, the horrors that we think of, the mass scale horrors, only are mass scale because civilization allows it. People on the whole, though, even in those dark times, individuals are usually better. There are so many stories, not enough, but many stories of people hiding Jews in the Holocaust, mm-hmm. of people, people dying to help other people. That that has happened in history. That is not that is not an anomaly. That happens with regularity when you have you know, six billion people, seven billion people. Mm-hmm. 
I think people on a whole are actually pretty decent to each other. And, and shitty times make people act better than they make them act worse. Maybe I just want to believe that, but I think that's true. Shitty times make people act better, not worse. Uh, well, better to people that you vaguely know. You're probably, there's probably, unfortunately... More altruistic towards strangers. Well, you're still going to be, you'll be altruistic and to people that you recognize as part of your group, however you define that. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you go for the World War II example, there are people who say, no, I, don't, I really don't have any beef with the Jews. This guy's another German. That sort of mentality might have taken hold. I don't think those people were hoping to gain anything by helping the Jews. I think you're right. So why did they do it? There are examples of awfulness from humans amongst each other in shitty times, and that you were telling me about it before, North Korea. Yeah. So what's, what's happened there? Uh, okay, so <laughs> North Korea is a very complicated situation, but during the uh, 1990s, because North Korea, because it was the end of the Cold War and the Soviet Union was no longer sending money and, 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 and uh, like coal and oil to, to North Korea, North Korea's economy completely collapsed. And not only did their economy collapse, but they had no food. And so, I mean, we were talking before, we were talking about, you know, what's the most disturbing thing you've ever read? This is probably the most disturbing fiction I've ever read, but it doesn't compare to the some of the disturbing nonfiction I've read, and just an account of what what went on during the during the famine in North Korea in the '90s, is probably even worse than this. Um, do you want me to? Yeah, man, lay it on us. A grandmother who who uh, killed and boiled her grandchildren to to eat. Um, like just whole towns and whole small cities finding human feces so that they could dry out and and eat it. So that they could try it out and and have something to eat because of the severe famine. Yeah, so in a way, even though this book was like really disturbing and showed people at their worst to each other, real life might be just as bad, if not worse. Well, yeah, if, if anything, what makes it worse is that it's real. Right? Yeah. The fact that, that there are regular reports of cannibalism coming out of North Korea, that's horrific. And I'm sure it's not the, I mean, it's not like cannibalism in like, the Bushman headhunters cannibalism where they're like, where it's like a religious, spiritual thing. This is just like, oh, if I don't eat that person, either I eat them or they eat me kind of cannibalism. We, that, is a, that is a thing we can't fathom in the United States because we just throw away more food than they mean what to do with. We throw away so much food. It's, it's kind of grody. It's an absurd amount of food. But it's, yeah. Something like a third. Something like of all the, a third of all the food produced in the United States goes straight into landfills. Maybe we should start planting crops there because they're very fertile with all that compost. But there's a big ad campaign in the subways, at least there was, yeah, last time I was on a train, for food waste. Mm-hmm. Don't, you know, the average New Yorker throws out, I don't know, I can't look up the figure, but it was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars, $2,000, $3,000 of food a year. Just yeah. thrown out. And we're in a country where we pay the least amount of least amount of our Income. earnings yeah. per for food than any other country in the world. Now, part of that isn't just consumers. It's also when you average that in with the, what the supermarkets throw out, with what rest, at the end of the day, what's, what of restaurants course. throw out at the end of the day. So it's not just that every single consumer is throwing away $3,000 worth of food every year. It, if you add it all together, that's what it, that's what it turns out to be. Sure. And, and you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not an advocate or um, I'm not an activist, but... If I were to cut down on my own personal food waste, that wouldn't be a bad idea. But if I, I, I don't know, 
I never thought about how to do that. Uh, unfortunately, it won't really make much difference in the post-apocalyptic world because food spoils rather quickly. Yeah. Unless it's grain or something, food doesn't hold up. I mean, it still spoils quickly. I mean, okay, so because the in the book, the uh, you know when the book takes place, it's like four or five years after the end of the world. All that grain is gone. There's okay. like at one point when they find a little bit of grain, and he like uh, uh, he, he 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 puts it through a, a sieve in order to get the rat droppings out. But there's like then they find like you know one or two bites to eat. I mean that's it. And so you know because cultivating grain, that's what civilization does. And it's just not going to last that long. I mean, even though you can, yeah, you can probably store it for a winter, but it's not, it's just not. Well, it helped the early civilization. Well, Hinjodaro and all those other places, they, but by grain, I mean, I mean they would grow it during the, during the rainy season or they'd grow it during the growing season and then store it to eat during the, during the, during the, the, the off season. Yeah, you could do that, but it's not going to last five years. It's not going to last in storage for five years. It's going to grow that. That, that hallucinogenic mold on it at that point? Might not I mean, be that, a bad idea. That's, that's just fun. That's how you get to meet the 3,000 Sumerian gods or whatever. But the, there is a point in the book where you get the sense that even the canned goods that they're living off of, they have... They can't even trust those. They don't live indefinitely. They find, you know, the boy gets a real treat when they find a can of Coke or Pepsi or something. Mm-hmm. And it, it, doesn't even, it doesn't even have that crisp uh, pop sound when they open it. It kind of fizzles. It, even that is starting to fade into uh, whatever past. Now that, now that soda is ripe, but mm-hmm. it's no longer up to date. So food is a shitty thing to give back to the book, to throw out and to waste. But that is growing it is hard, and nobody knows how to do it. Yeah, I, I, you know, I garden and grow some tomatoes and peppers in my backyard. That would not keep us fed for a week amount, and that would be if we are hungry and whiny for a week. It would be a day and a half. Yeah. If you took all the food in your backyard that you're growing, and that's all you had to survive, it would it would it would, it would last you a day and a half. Yeah, and we, we well that's because we grow food on these industrial scales, and we don't have to deal mm-hmm. with that shit. That's more of a Finn Dumont. Yes, I, don't I know do. Using. I think I think Finn Dumont is this guy. Oh, I think. About that. You know, you said it earlier it's a scary book. Yeah, and it is. Let me ask you when when did you first read this book? Uh, I mean, I just first read it read it a couple of years ago. I think it's because you recommended it. I was like, "Oh, okay. Sounds like a sounds like a book I'll read." You're so welcome. I read it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I, um, I I asked because I read it. Um, you know, I actually when the book the book came out, I didn't know because I wasn't not that I didn't read books, but I really wasn't an ardent reader. I really wasn't when this book when I first read this book. Even I worked at a retail gig when I was in college at a supermarket and we had you know, a random section of new release books mm-hmm. and they had the movie tie-in version of The Road and I bought it with the fucking stupid cover with Viggo Mortensen on it. Not that I don't like Viggo Mortensen but I just that just movie tie-in coverage bothered yeah. me for some reason. And I took it home and I had nothing going on that night so I started to read it and it's a short book. Maybe 240 pages or something like that but a very brisk read. I read it that night. Now, partially, there's no easy place to stop. There are no chapters. There are pauses, but it's really just like a straight-flowing thing. And I read it straight through. Like, I got to know what happens next. I got to know what happens next. And it ended, and I was shaken. I was like, Something inside of me had been, had been broken from reading the book. It was so awful. So I asked, like, what was your reaction like when you first read it? I and mean, I told you it was a good book, I guess, but 
I don't think I told you that much about I mean, what it's I, about. I read it in pieces. Um, I don't, okay, I don't recall my exact reaction during my first reading, but, because I've never read it a couple times, but it was, I mean, it's disturbing. I mean, I, I haven't seen that many horror movies in my time, but, I mean, I'm not a horror movie connoisseur or anything, or a horror book connoisseur. Are there any of those? I don't know. Stephen King fans? Besides Stephen King. We'll talk about Stephen King in a second. Clive Barker. I read a little bit real little bit of those. It's not like I knew anything about it. But when I read it, this was this was, this was frightening. You know what the, the the way I had to exercise the, the fear that I got from the book, I returned the book the next day. <laughs> <laughs> I read it straight through. I went to work the next day, I returned it. I got pulled behind. <laughs> Sorry, it's fucked up. I ba- I used that story as my library. <laughs> Which I kind of, you know, I don't regret it because I did that for actually a couple of books I read back when I worked there because I was just a dick. Mm-hmm. Um, some of those books I actually really liked and I wish I still had it reread them. But because it was the movie tie-in version, I'm like, ah, I'm not really missing anything. <laughs> I actually went back and got a different copy with a with a better cover later on. So I, I just I was hooked. It's 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 besides yeah. Catcher in the Rye and The Road that there are no other books I've read in one sitting. You know. It's, um, Maybe maybe like one or two like Animal Farm just because it's so short. I read it on like a train ride or something like that. But mm-hmm. sitting at home where there's the fucking internet or other you know a million other things. Any any other distractions? That I said no. I'm really into this. I'm going to keep reading this book because I have not that I have attention span issues, but there was a certain amount about. Oh, I wonder what's going on in the world of YouTube right now. Or oh, I haven't fiddled around on my guitar in a little while. Or oh, there's pornography out there. <laughs> Whatever it is. <laughs> I, I I was just focused on this book, and I, and it was it was disturbing. And I think that's the bit. I don't know if I'd say it's scary. I don't know if I would say I was scared by it. Yeah, that that might not be the right word. But when you when you I mean, the sections that are disturbing, if it's only they're only like two or three pages, and you know they they come across the house with the people being held captive as food, and then they have to run away as fast as they can, and then and then the man says gives the son the pistol and says, you know what to do? Do you know how to use this? And just within literally a space of like four or five pages, just incredibly disturbing things. I think that's because it's more emotional roller coaster. Yeah, yeah it, it is an emotional roller coaster. It definitely makes you feel something, this book. I'm trying to think of a better, or less cliched way to say that. Emotional roller coaster just makes me think of the must-see movie of the fall. But it, it, you go from nervousness, curiousness, to disgust and horror to just overwhelming despair in mm-hmm. in three pages. Yeah. Over, uh, emotional roller coaster might be the best way I could think to describe it, even though know, it's a cliche. So you definitely feel something from it. You read it and you... F- but I think the thing you feel is just, like, you got punched in the stomach the whole book. And just, oh, God. Yeah. Because you read it and you see the awfulness... And you never once go, all right, that's over the top. No. Too far. That's just silly. Which, I don't want to shit on Stephen King. I've read a bunch of stuff. I've not read nearly a fraction of Stephen King's work because he has so many. But I've read a few, and they're supposed to be scary. I've never really been scared by Stephen King. I enjoy the books I've read. I won't deny that I like them. But I think of Misery, we talked about that, as the book that might be the most disturbing that we've both read. Mm -hmm. And even the middle of Misery, I was you know, enough's enough. This is, this is, this got, this went too far too I wasn't, fast. I wasn't scared by it. It was just, 
I mean, it was a thriller. I mean, I kind of wanted to know what happened next, but I wasn't frightened by it. Yeah, but you were... I wasn't frightened. I wasn't really disturbed even after a little while. I was. It was kind of comical. It's like, oh, she, she broke his leg again. Okay, that makes sense. Oh, now she cut off his foot with a knife. Like, that's extreme. And nothing compared to the road. She cut off his thumb or something like that, right? I forget exactly what happens in Misery. But after you're like, all right, this is just cartoonish. Now, the road is so far past that in its grisly depictions. You know, it, it's so far over the top that you can't even see the top in, in your rearview mirror. <laughs> it's, so, it's gone. But it somehow seems realistic. That's what makes it disturbing or perhaps scary. I mean, we could parse what those two terms mean. You know, as a reader, you really, if you have to suspend disbelief at all reading this book, it's only the tiniest amount. Like, it seems so realistic, even though it's so horrible. Right. And that's what makes it effective. Yeah. One of the things that makes it effective. That is the main thing that makes it effective is that, you know, it's what's the line from Lord of the Flies? The darkness in a man's heart or the darkness in a man's soul or you. Things seem plausible, impossible. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I could see some person being that desperate that that's, they're going to do that. They're going to do that to another person. I still stand by my original position that it would never get that bad because people are actually better than that. But maybe I'm just hoping that because I have no survival skills. And when the, when the end comes, when the, when the rapture happens and I'm stuck here, I want to I, I believe that I'll be okay. Yeah, part of me wants to think I'll be one of those survivors who who makes it, but I won't. That's not that, that's not that's not true. Statistically, no, no, no. Statistic, right not just away. statistically, but just is your capacity to endure, your capacity to survive in situ- situations like that. I want to think I'm tough. I'm not. Forty five minutes after the end of the world, I'll go. No, that's enough. All right. My skills are puns and dick jokes, so I really don't have much to offer. I'd be the sex slave. <laughs> Which, actually, not really. I mean, they'd eat me. That's fine. <laughs> I understand it. I'm a big man. There's a, there's a lot of meat here. It's fine. It's finely marbled. <laughs> they'd eat me. That'd be the end of it. That's sad, but realistic. So, you know what? I guess I shouldn't worry about making that bunker. Because <laughs> what the fuck am I going to do with it? It is a disturbing book, nonetheless. I mean, I try to make light of it now because it just was so heavy to talk about. But if you have not read it, and you've listened to us ramble about it, you really should. It is an intense read, and it'll grab you by the by the genitals, and it takes you along for the 200 pages it's got. And not that I've read all the other Pulitzer winners, but this is very different than yeah. the other books you would consider the great American novel Pulitzer winners. This 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 is different. You know, you think about like the Oscars and like Oscar bait films, and the films that are about oh, it's a, the Holocaust. It's about the Holocaust. Or it's about, whereas in the 90s it was about the Holocaust. Because, you know, oh, it's been 50 years since World War II, and, you know, Schindler's List, and the PNS, what, it's actually 2002 or something. And, and Shine was not, well, no, he wasn't. Uh, what was uh, was that Italian one? Oh, yeah. What am I Life is Beautiful. Life is yeah. Beautiful, yeah. That was great. Um, there's a few more. Did you ever watch the, oh, man, there was this cartoon called Queer Duck that was on Showtime when I was a kid? I've never even heard of it. I don't know why I was watching a Showtime cartoon called Queer Duck, and, and Ninth grade, but they, they had a, a short little clip where they go to the Oscars, and it's again now presenting the Academy the nominees for best documentary, and it was before the Holocaust. The next one, after the Holocaust, the Legend of Sleepy Holocaust, <laughs> and the story of how bees make honey during the Holocaust. <laughs> like that was, 
it's not terribly far from the truth. Like, like, certain things become the, the sort of issue of the time or the topic of the time. And, you know, we've seen it with, with, with uh, the Holocaust, which not to say it should not be covered. So please don't think that I'm saying it shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. But the Holocaust, um, AIDS and HIV, like with like Philadelphia and Dallas yeah. Barkley, any, anything that kind of talks about that tends to be Oscar bait. This is like there are similar types of books that are are you know Booker bait or Pulitzer bait. They're you know, they master bait. Like they are the kinds of books that are going to they're like oh this is a book that's about a, what was it all the light we cannot see. This is a book about a blind yeah. French girl during World War II and her father is a good man and then there's a Nazi. I liked that book a lot actually. That was Pulitzer bait. That was yep. the kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, that's gonna fucking win the book. That's gonna win or. Um, even to some degree, Oscar Wilde. Oh, yeah. post-colonialism, Dominican-American writer about the experience in the old country and the new country. That's the sort of thing. Like, oh, yeah, that's definitely going to win an award. Yeah. yeah. At least that was original. It was. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying there are certain things, like when you distill it down to their like, publisher punchline, you feel like, oh, yeah, that, that, that could, that, I could see that winning an award. But when you say man and son rove around in the post-apocalyptic dust world and try not to with get... With a grocery cart. <laughs> with a grocery cart and a tarp and try not to get raped or eaten. Like, nah, I don't know about that one. I don't know. Like, isn't there yeah. another book about, like, an overweight girl who uh, dis- <laughs> discovers that she's been adopted and her real parents are in jail? <laughs> in the Holocaust. Yeah. <laughs> That's sort of thing. You're like, oh, that, that makes more sense. This book does not fit in. So... No. It's well-written, I guess, but there's a, I have a huge beef with this book, with the way it's written. Wasn't it an Oprah book club book? It was a fucking Oprah book club book, which is so random. Yeah. Now, Oprah's book club has a... It's The Help and The Road. So different. So in The, in the Help, they didn't just all eat each other in, in like <laughs> 1950s Alabama? Right? I, I don't think so. I've not read The Help or A Million Little Pieces. I mean, yeah. that's the one where the guy had lied about his drug addiction oh, that was, and presented yeah. it as a memoir, but it was fiction. Okay. And then over fucking skewered him on TV. It is a weird choice. But still gave him a car. Yes, everyone got a car. <laughs> he got a car too. But she, but she like keyed it first. <laughs> so that's The Road by Cormac McCarthy. All right, join us next time when we read Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. Yes, we'll be going nonfiction, but in the meantime, you can tell us what you think by sending us an email at drunkguysbookclub at gmail.com. Or on Twitter at drunkguysbc. As in book club. See you next time. <laughs>